Well, um, have you ever, I'm, I'm sure you have, been in the presence of somebody who is exceptionally gifted? Someone who just has an exceptional ability. Maybe it's someone who's got musical performing abilities. Every once in a while on PBS, they'll show the 10th anniversary of the Dreamcast of Les Miserables. There's a guy named Colin Wilkinson who plays Jean Valjean, and nobody sings Bring Him Home better than him. It still moves me to tears. A grown man, almost 51 years old. Um, perhaps you've seen somebody who's gifted physically and athletically. Maybe you watched the Olympics this, this last summer and saw Simone Biles just fly in the air. How does that little girl just launch herself amazingly? Or, or uh, Usain Bolt just like seemed to race, run his own race while everyone else just kind of trailed behind him. Or perhaps, you know, you've heard somebody who's just eloquent and just so well thought out. Like when you listen to a man named Ravi Zacharias, it's like, it's like he just connects all the dots. It's just a pleasure to listen to him. Or to be in anyone's presence who has gifting of, of any sort, whether it be arts and crafts or someone who's just a handyman or handywoman able to repair things, someone who's got great organizational or administrative gifts, being able to kind of take chaos and, and manage it all, or someone who has great hospitality gifts or even gifts of mercy and just makes people feel welcome. It's a pleasure to be in that person's presence. But here's the truth also, is that sometimes gifting can have its downfall as well. When the gift becomes self-serving, when the gift becomes about the person who has the gift or about advancing that gift in itself, we have a few examples in the Bible. Samson, God's strongman, right? Called to be a judge and, and deliver the people of Israel. Instead, he turned around and took that strength and used it to play games with a woman who would ultimately betray him. Solomon was given great wisdom and great wealth. Called to display that and, and really bring the wisdom of God to Israel. But instead he started to turn around and make himself a collector. A collector of, of, of wisdom, a collector of wealth, a collector of women. And if you, if you read about how his story ends, it's not good. He just ends up being cynical. And Balaam, a prophet we read about in the, in the Exodus, a man who has been given great ability to speak for God, but he turns around and uses it for his own profit instead of speaking truly for God. And even in our modern day, people can use their giftings to promote themselves. It's, you know, I've been following Jesus for many years, and it's, it's sad when you see a prominent Christian artist or a prominent Christian leader use their gifts really to promote themselves and, and get off the trail that God had put them on. They take their gifting and use it to promote themselves. So a person may exchange their character for cash. They exchange things like their family for fame. 
righteousness for relevance, integrity for artistry, and godly desire for worldly appeal. What happens, though, when people start using their gifting to make much of themselves in the church? And what happens when that is actually happening within a whole church? How do you help turn that around? We're starting a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you want to put your finger there, that's where we'll be today. And today we're just going to scratch the surface. But this is called, the sermon series is, is what I call Grace in the Mess. I thought about saints behaving badly, but I thought it was too negative. But, you know, it is grace in the mess. And we're going to see about how God's grace meets them. And so Corinth was a, a place. It was a town. It was a place where the Apostle Paul goes. And so uh, some fun facts about this place. Corinth is, is situated here, and Athens is over here. And there's, this is called the Isthmus of Corinth. And because of that, they're able to do business on this little causeway between the Gulf of Corinth and the Sardonic Gulf. They're strategically located there. It's a key place. But this town was actually destroyed by the Roman Empire in uh, 146 B.C. and then rebuilt in 44 B.C. by Julius Caesar. He saw the strategic wisdom of having this place. It was also a place where they had an event called the Isthmian Games, only second to the Olympic Games. And these were held on the off years of the Olympics didn't happen because Caesar wanted, or Julius Caesar wanted to control that. Eventually this town was repopulated with mostly Roman citizens, people who were freedmen but were needed someplace to kind of, you know, advance themselves or to start over. It was kind of go, instead of go west, it was go east of them. And this was the place where people would start to build their wealth, build their, um, you know, their empire, if you will. In fact, it became the second most important city in the empire as far as commerce was concerned. It became a metropolitan city, and it had metropolitan city problems. Prostitution, idolatry, greed, and all the other graphs that came with it. Paul comes to uh, Corinth after he had been in Athens, and we read about this in Acts 18. It's the place where Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, who had just come from Rome. And after Paul has spent some time in the synagogue telling the Jews about Jesus, those who received him received him, those who rejected him rejected him, and Paul moved his ministry to a house uh, of a man named Titius Justus. And he plants his church and stays there for 18 months and gives himself to this. And after a while, the Jews, as we read about it in Acts 18, try and accuse him, try and, you know, of stirring up people. And they come before the proconsul named Gallio. But Gallio ignores them. And um, a man named Sosthenes was the leader of the, the synagogue. And what's interesting is because they're ineffective in bringing this charge before Gallio, the Jews actually turn on Sosthenes and beat him to a pulp. And, and Gallio just ignores that. And you know, That may just seem like trivia, but hold on to that thought. We'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later. But Paul, you know, after his 18 months there, he takes Aquila and Priscilla, goes across the Adriatic Sea to, to Ephesus, leaves them there, goes himself to 
to Antioch and gives his report about what happened in the second missionary journey. Meanwhile, Aquila and Priscilla meet a man named Apollos there who has some knowledge about Jesus but has incomplete knowledge. And they come alongside of him and inform him more, um, you know, in a more complete way. And this man is obviously gifted and Apollos ends up going over to Corinth and teaching and preaching to that church. And we'll see that a little bit later as well. But again, Paul in the meantime you know, does his rounds in, in um, Antioch and comes back to Ephesus, plants the church there for three years, and meanwhile he hears a report about what's going on in Corinth. And the report was not good. What he had started got disappointing. There was division there, there was idolatry, sexual immorality, drunkenness during the Lord's Supper, lawsuits amongst believers, and besides that, Paul's reputation among the, the Corinthian Christians was not very good anymore. And they were using their spiritual gifts to make much of themselves rather than much of Jesus in building up the body. Where do you start in addressing believers who kind of lost their way? You have to remind them. You have to remind them of God's grace. This is what Paul does at the beginning of our letters. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into this letter so Lord this word is for your people it's for the Christian church and it's for us so open our eyes and show us what we have for us today give us grace to receive to respond to us we need repent give us grace to repent if we need rejoice give us grace to rejoice if we need to respond to you, Jesus, for the first time, to grace, to respond, to put faith in you. So we commit this time to you and ask you to be more time to pray. Jesus, amen. So as I said, 1 Corinthians is a letter. We call it the book of Corinthians, but truly it's, it's a letter. It's a long letter, but it's a letter to this church who's kind of lost their way. So, within this, he gives a formal greeting. And it, it's, this formal greeting, this salutation, if you will, is comprised of three components. Number one, there is just the author or the addresser. Who's writing the letter? Number two, who is it to? The addressee or the reader. And number three, a prayer or thanksgiving. Now, there had been a question as to Paul's eloquence, Paul's wisdom. So Paul takes this formal greeting, which was used in many official letters, to redeem it and to show the people and remind them of their need for God's grace. So here we are, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Paul first starts out reminding them that his apostleship is from Jesus Christ himself. As I said earlier, Paul is the one who planted the church in Corinth. And as Paul was proclaiming Christ to them, I'm sure he told his own story about how he was once an enemy of the gospel. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. 
and how he was even trying to put to death the church, the Christian movement. And how Jesus apprehends him on the road to Damascus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. He grabs him, he blinds him, knocks him off his horse. And, and he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Literally persecuting Jesus, but he's persecuting Jesus' followers. Who are you, Lord? I am Christ Jesus, who you are persecuting. And Jesus reveals himself as the risen Christ, as the risen Messiah. And he takes Paul and turns him around 180 degrees and makes Paul his apostle, his sent one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he was the perfect apostle. Paul had a unique background and gifting. First of all, he was a Pharisee. He pretty much had the whole Old Testament memorized with all the theology along with that. He had that whole package. But he was from a town called Tarsus in Cilicia, which was a huge bastion of, of Roman and Greek culture. So he'd been exposed to that. He spoke both Greek and Aramaic. So he was a, you know, a great ambassador, understood all the ins and outs of that. Also, he was a Roman citizen. So he was not going to get caught up by any, any hang-ups because he was of Jewish descent. He had access to the whole Roman Empire and had legal rights that others did not. But also, he was zealous. He was tremendously zealous when he, when he tried to destroy the church. And in, in turn around, he was tremendously zealous for Christ and his cause. He was not going to let anything stand in his way. Some people say that Paul was God's bulldog. If you read his story, it's amazing. It's amazing. He was the perfect apostle. But again, as we know the story, time had passed. And other teachers had come into Corinth. Other teachers that seemed quite eloquent, quite well-spoken, that were scratching them and itching the the Corinthian church where they itched. And they were talking about things. They were focusing in on wisdom and knowledge and gifting. Gifts like speaking in tongues or a word of knowledge or prophecy. And these were supernatural gifts that seemed to be, you know, otherworldly, if you will. They were enamored by the gifting of these teachers and they were enamored with the gifts themselves. And it seemed like they were painting a pathway for spiritual growth. But in truth, it really appealed to their own pride, to make much of themselves. See, Paul's message of Christ and him crucified, that seemed oh so elementary, so passe, so, I don't know. We need to get up beyond this. We need to move on. We need to be all that we can be here. And Paul's message it seemed weak. It seemed like they were wondering if he was even qualified to be an apostle. And to be sure, everything Paul says is anchored in Jesus Christ. If you go through these nine verses, you're going to see nine mentions of Christ, of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus our Lord. You can see it nine times. There's only one verse that doesn't mention it. And that's verse 5. But Paul reminds the Christians that his own call was not of his own doing. 
It was Jesus Christ reaching into his life and calling him to be his apostle. His authority didn't come from his ambition, his talent, or his gifting, but it was that of Jesus Christ. You see, a self-appointed leader sees himself as his own boss. And when it gets hard, well, then he leaves because, you know, why do I want to make this so hard? Why do I want to put up with this? There must be a better way to make a living or what have you. But the Christ-appointed leader sees himself as Jesus is the boss. And when it gets hard, I don't leave until Jesus says I can leave because he's the one who's called me to be where I'm to be. And why Sosthenes? Why is he mentioned? Here's the thing. Sosthenes was just like Saul of Paul. He was an enemy of the gospel. He was leaving the synagogue to, to come before Galileo and persecute the Christians. And they go south on him. His own people turn on him. And at the end of the day, somehow Jesus picks him up and makes him his own. See, Sosthenes was once an enemy of Jesus, just like Paul was. But now he is a brother. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. It adds credibility to Paul's story. It's not just, it's not, it's not biblical trade. No, Jesus had picked up Sosthenes, turned around, redeemed him, and repurposed him for his kingdom. So if any man, any woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. Christ is in them. It was true of Paul. It was true of these Corinthians. He wants to remind them of that. Verse 2, it says, To the church, the second part of the salutation, of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul reminds them that they have been set apart. He reminds them that they've been set apart. Sanctified is one of those churchy Christian words, right? What does that mean? I've been sanctified. What does that mean? Sanctified can mean, you know, morally without blame. But more, more specifically, it means to be set apart. God has set these people apart for himself. Just like in the, in the temple, there were specific instruments that were set apart only for the worship of God. You have a sanctified instrument in your house. You know what it's called? A toothbrush. You don't want that brush to be used for anything else, especially near the toilet, right? That is a sanctified instrument. You if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are sanctified. And he goes on to say, called to be holy. And that comes from the same root word. You are holy people called to be holy. Well, that sounds redundant. It is. It is. You've been called to be set apart, and that's how you ought to be living. This is what God has done, and this is what his call is on your life. Here was the problem with the Corinthians. They weren't living a sanctified life. They weren't living a set-apart life. They were much more like their own culture. They were having a problem getting out of the orbit of the Corinthian culture. 
they're acting just like their Corinthian pagan counterparts. And, and Paul's going, this ought not be. This is what God's call is on your life. This is what he's done. And this is how you ought to be living. And, you know, being sanctified doesn't, I mean, not living a sanctified life does not necessarily mean doing immoral things. But let me ask you this question. Every day when you walk out the door, and this, this question is coming back to me as well, all right, folks? Do you see yourself as sanctified unto the Lord? Do you walk out the door saying, Today God has set me apart for His purposes to accomplish His will somewhere. Whether it's at my job, whether it's going to the store, whether it's at school. Or do I walk out the door saying, God, I've got my agenda here. Bless it. God has set us apart for His purposes. That's what needs to be sanctified. And as I said, they were having a hard time with that. Paul also reminds them that the church they're a part of is God's church. Again, he says, to the church of God in Corinth. It was not their church. It was God's church. And it was much bigger than just the Corinthian congregation or um, house churches. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours. You see, it was much bigger than their own brand of Christianity. Much bigger than their own practices. Much bigger than what they wanted to focus on. Ultimately, it was the whole body of Christ. I'm going to make an example of my brother Bob Mancocka here today. If you don't know Bob, you should. He's from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Is that correct? I'm going to tell you what. Being here is much different than what it's like to be in his home church. Much different. How we worship, you know, the language barrier, all the things. I'm not good or bad, I'm, I'm just saying. But what makes us brothers in Christ is not our style. What makes us brothers in Christ is that we have called on the, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been, we're people who have put our faith in Jesus. And so, as our brothers and sisters are waiting right now in Haiti for a storm that's coming, we need to be with them in spirit and be praying for them. But the church is much bigger than here on the corner of Kenosha and Valley High. And even here in Rochester, we have brothers and sisters that we need to be connected with and see ourselves as a much bigger body. I am so grateful for Berean. I'm not trying to downplay anything that God is doing here. I'm just saying the body is much bigger than what's happening here on this corner. God is doing so much more. They thought they were expanding their horizons. In fact, they were becoming much more smaller. Number three, verse three, grace and peace to you from, from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace that you have received in Christ. Number three, Paul reminds them of the grace and peace that they have received. Again, this is a church that's having problems, thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think, and they are humble. The grace they have, they have received. It's not of their own merit. 
It is the bountiful and merciful grace of a father who has given his son in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that verse that many of our kids memorize in Awana, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. And not a result of works. It is the gift of God that no one can boast. There was a group that was trying to boast about their gifting, about making much of themselves. They had nothing to boast about except Jesus. And receiving God's grace in Christ, they were also receiving, receiving God's peace. Or in the Hebrew term, the shalom. It's not just rec reconciliation between God and parties, if you will, but it is well-being and wholeness, restoring what was lost in the fall. If you're in a Life Together group, you're going through the book Prodigal God. And what's amazing about that story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 is that this rebellious son who asks for his inheritance goes and squanders it away. And when he comes back, he is amazingly restored to the family. Full rights as a son. That is what we are given in Jesus Christ. That shalom, that wholeness. We are restored. So grace and peace. And along with that grace and peace comes an enrichment or gifting. Pick it up at verse 5. For in him you have been enriched in every way. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Number four, Paul reminds them of how they have been gifted and equipped because of his grace. The truth is, I think Paul really takes the high road when he starts to give thanksgiving for their gifting. With all kinds of speech, it says, and all knowledge. Again, they were enamored by what we call sign gifts. Words of um, speaking in tongues or words of knowledge. Again, something that we would call charismatic. But it became a major source of division and pride and immaturity. And Paul takes three chapters, chapters 12 through 14, to deal with these issues. And yet Paul sees it as a confirmation of their faith, of what God is doing in them. And their response is really a testimony to their faith about how they responded to Paul's testimony about Christ, how they responded to the gospel. I want to say this. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, God has given you a gift, at least one be used supernaturally for his glory. And the, the root word from that word for the gift, spiritual gift, in the Greek is a grace. The word in, in Greek for, for grace is charis. The word for, for the spiritual gift is charismata. You've been given a grace to be used for the church for the advancement of his kingdom. But there's an end goal with 
this. It's not, again, to make much of yourself. But verse 7, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus to be revealed. Paul reminds them of the right end goal. To what end are you using this gift, if you will? Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, has come. He came and lived the life that we could not live. He came and died and paid a debt we could not pay. He rose from the dead and conquered a foe we could not conquer in death. And now he offers us a life that we do not have in ourselves. None of us could do that. That's why we needed a Savior. And that's why we're saying, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That grace is out there for anyone who will receive it. But there will come a time where He's going to come again. He's going to come again. And when He comes again, or as He is revealed, as Paul says here, He's not coming to bring salvation. He's coming to bring judgment. So if the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord a great and terrible day, as Joel 2.11 talk about in Malachi 4.5, and there will be no do-overs. There will be no second chances. When Jesus Christ is revealed, there are going to be some things that are going to be revealed with that. First of all, it's just going to be the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to be more holy and awesome and beautiful and stunning than we ever imagined. It's what what the Apostle John experiences in Revelation 1.17. And I guarantee you folks, we're going to fall on our faces. It will be awesome. Number two, believers will be revealed with Jesus in glory. We talked about this in North Star Living in Colossians 3.4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So that we're united with him in that and his glorious future. Number three, our efforts, including our gifting, will show whether they're being used for his kingdom or for our own, our own efforts and our own aggrandizement. First Corinthians chapter three, verses 13 through 15 says, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even, even, as the, even though only as one escaping through the flames. But last of all, what it will reveal is if you are in Christ or not. The words of Jesus say this, John 3 verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus is God's only provision for salvation and for us to have right relationship with him. And when he comes again, the opportunity to respond will be there no longer. And folks, I'm not trying to manipulate anybody. I'm just saying that tomorrow is not, is not guaranteed to any of us. 
And Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. There's no halfway. There's no, well, I, you know, I've, I've gone to church or my parents had me baptized or I'm a good person. No, either you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and trusted all that he has done or you haven't. There's an old radio preacher, and I'm going to put it crassly as he did. He said, his name is J. Vernon McGee. He said, my beloved, either you're a saint or you're an ain't. And you know, that may sound very pithy, but here's the truth. There is no halfway. Either you're in Jesus or you're not. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, I plead with you to do so. Because it will be too late. Again, I'm not trying to manipulate anybody. No, I'm just trying to be faithful with the gospel that's been given to you. Jesus is offering you life. He's offering you eternal life. A changed life. And you can't do it yourself. It's what He wants to do in you. And that offer is to anyone who will believe. Anyone who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, I know you came and you died to pay my penalty. And I know that unless I put my faith in you, I stand condemned before a holy God. So come into my life. Forgive my sin. And make me a new creation. Make me your child. Give me all the benefits and enrichment that only are found in Jesus Christ. You notice all the songs we sang today about Jesus? Why are we so crazy about Jesus? Because life is only found in Him. It's only found in Him. That's what we stake our whole existence on, our whole eternity. I plead with you, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, do so today. The scripture says, to as many as received Him, even those who believed in his name. To them he gave the right to become children of God. It's not complex. It is by faith asking God to come into your life and change you by what Jesus has done. If you want to respond to that, I'm going to pray for you at the end of this sermon. But for those of us who believe, again, as you can see, we were given gifts not to make much of ourselves but to be living toward his kingdom. Because it's going to be consummated in his return. His kingdom has already come. It came when Jesus came the first time. But it's going to be consummated when he returns again. And folks, let me tell you, we're going to look back on eternity, on our earthly lives, and we're not going to say, boy, I wish I made more money. Boy, I wish I had a bigger house faster car. Now we're going to say, I wish I trusted God more. I wish I had given this resource. I wish I had given my heart more fervently to Christ in his kingdom. I wish I'd used my gifts more diligently. Jesus. The last of all, number six. Paul reminds them that God will faithfully bring this all to completion. Verse 8. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a great promise. And what a humbling statement as well. Both for the Corinthians and for ourselves. See, it'll be God who's going to keep us firm until the end. And present us blameless before himself because of what Jesus has done. Because of his grace. And just for clarification, verse 9, he adds that he's faithful. God is faithful. He's going to do this because that's who God is. He keeps his word and then he does it. And he has called us into fellowship with his son. When you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus... It's not, okay, I got my hell insurance taken care of, and now I can just go live my life. No, you enter into a, a new relationship where you are born again, and Jesus is right there, whether you choose to acknowledge him or not. and wants to be present in your everyday life, every moment, every decision that you make. And are we going to practice his presence in all that we do? And that fellowship is going to continue into eternity. But the point is that God is the one who's going to bring this to completion. He's the one that's going to keep us faithful. He's the one who's going to present us blameless because he is faithful. So, what's the significance of this, these first nine verses, this salutation? As we're going to see, this Corinthian church is a mess. It is a mess. I mean, it's full of division. And sexual immorality, worldliness, to a point even sometimes when you read it, you kind of go, was this person really a Christian? Was that really going on there? And we may look around us and see other people who claim to be Christians and their lives are messy. They're struggling with sin. They have a wrong focus or they're worldly. They need correction. They need redirection. And that might be even us ourselves. But it is a great reminder that God is the one who is at work. And he can meet us with his grace in the mess. You know, Paul's not going to just say, Oh, you know, God's grace covers it all, no problem. No, he's bringing correction to them. Reminding them, remember, they're holy people. You ought to be acting like this. We're going to deal with a lot of correction here, folks. But nevertheless... God is at work. And he was going to complete the work in the Corinthian church, and he's going to bring the completion of the work at the Berean community church in each one of us. And that should give us great hope. Great hope. Because I don't know about you, there are days where I feel like I'm a bit of a mess. But I have great trust that God can deal with my mess and will bring his work to completion in my life. And now we're going to take just a moment here and we're going to celebrate what God has done to address our mess and remembering his death on the cross and his rising from the dead. Now let me pray before we get into this time. Lord, we are challenged by this salutation. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are times where we don't see ourselves as sanctified unto you. We see ourselves as our own bosses. 
we see ourselves as living our lives to fulfill our agenda. And uh, we repent of that, Lord. Would you give us grace to realize that, that you would purchase us for yourself, and we are so grateful. You've done what we couldn't do. But Lord, we want to be living for your purposes, using the gifts that you've given us, the resources you've given us, and all that you've given us to live for you. And Lord, I pray for that person right now who needs to respond to you. And if that's you, I just pray that you would, I'd ask you to pray these words after me, they're not magic words. They're Lord Jesus, I need you. I trust that you died for me and rose again to give me life that I don't have in myself. So come into my life. Make me your own. Make me a new creation. Show me the life that you have that I don't have in myself. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray for that person, Lord, that they would indeed respond to you. But now as we remember what you've done for us, Jesus, give us grateful hearts, give us thoughtful hearts, and make us mindful that what we have received in you is grace. It's unmerited faith. So in your name I pray these things.